Consistent self-improvement, everybody. You are now listening to American Gypsy Podcast. I'm your host, and I'm your co-host. Gypsy, and today we have Wilkerson. She is a California licensed attorney, MBA holder, and business owner. She is also a full-time department chair of legal studies program American River College in Sacramento and host of Transcend the Welcome, Asha. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's a pleasure having you here. Before we get into some of the um, business business Uh stuff, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask, you know, where are you from? And tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got into what you do. I always shock people when I tell them I'm from Portland, Oregon. <laughs> but I've been in the Bay Area in California since, God, it's been 20 years now. I told someone that today. I can't believe it's been 20 years. I left Portland to go to college at Santa Clara University and then moved up to Oakland when I started law school in San Francisco. And then I've been here ever since. So that's my uh, my migration, my geographic migration story. But I ended up as an attorney kind of by accident. If someone can end up in law school by accident, I was so set on being a teacher. I love being an educator. And um, I was fortunate enough to take part in a pre-law program as an undergraduate student. And my philosophy in life is like, don't stand in your own way, apply and see what happens. So I applied, saw what happened, I got in and I made the choice to go to law school because I thought it would give me the best platform to be able to help people in different ways, whether that's working on policy or advocating in some other sense. So that's how I got to where I am today in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> okay like in Portland, Oregon growing up? Yeah, well, I was the only black kid in most of my situations. So my mom and I, we lived uh, in the suburbs of Portland and my dad um, stayed out in the rural part of Oregon in this town called Newburgh. So he was out in the country by himself. He brought some, bought some property out there, was one of the first people to settle in this area on this mountain called Shehalem Mountain. And and uh, when my parents split, we ended up moving into the city right outside of Portland. And I'll tell you, it's not very diverse. When I think about leaving the Bay Area, that is one of the things that I consider the most is just the diversity. There's diversity within diversity. You can find any niche you want here. But Portland is not quite like that. It's getting a little bit better. But I was the only kid, black kid on my softball team um, in my elementary school. Uh, maybe there's a handful of in middle school and just a couple in high school so um, I have the I had to learn very early on how to code switch and I don't I, you know I didn't know what that was at the time but had to learn how to be okay with standing out and be okay with who I was in a situation or in multiple situations where people didn't readily identify themselves with me and I didn't necessarily identify, identify myself with them as well pretty interesting I know that had to have been a very very different i guess experience growing up i i couldn't uh, we um she was really watching some videos um and she heard you speaking about uh, your family in jackson mississippi mm-hmm. yeah so, no i'm originally so from oxford my, mm-hmm. okay oh really yeah my mom raised, so raised my mom jackson. is yeah my mom is from jackson but my mom integrated old she was the first black woman to attend the University of Mississippi. So oh. she spent three years at Oxford. She got in and out in three years. And I have been to Oxford a couple of times. She was inducted to the Hall of Fame in I was 
in college when she was inducted to the Hall of Fame. Um, so I have been there a couple of times, but not too often. Yeah, okay. Sorry about that. Okay. We got cut off, you know, a little bit uh, for our listeners. Um, we can pick back up where you were telling us that your mother uh, attended o- Ole Miss. Yeah. So my mom was actually the first black woman to integrate the University of Mississippi at 18 years of age back in 1965, I think it was. So we have a history or she has a history with Oxford, Mississippi, which is where you said that you're from. And then she's born and raised in Jackson. So um, I go back not as frequently as I would like to go, but I'm probably going back in the next couple months too. We were just talking about those potholes we got to avoid. Love the food, love the people of Jackson, Mississippi, but the streets. (laughs) Come on, Jackson. (laughs) Yeah. It's a it's a, a lot of history there, and um, I was raised in in Jackson. Mm-hmm. I went to school at um at least I, I went to Jim Hill for three years, and I graduated up in um. That's Oxford where my High. mom went. She went to Jim Hill. Yeah, the Tigers. <laughs> yeah, my I, my older I'm the youngest out of five. Uh, my older siblings, I think three of them went to Provine, and mm-hmm. um, the two me and my brother. Slim, the one three years above me, we went to uh, uh-huh. Jim Hill and played in the band uh-huh. and everything, you know. So it was, it's a lot of, a lot of, you know, of our roots is there. It's definitely a lot mm-hmm. of our, everything that made us on the music side. Um, but, you know, I was just interested in that as far as the Mississippi connection and even just the, the family roots and things like that. Mm-hmm. I have to ask you, though, before we, we move up past Jackson, did you ever go to Eddie's Catfish Shack? Eddie and Ruby's Catfish oh, yeah, Shack. yeah, right down Valley Street. Yes, yes. Yeah. Every time we get off the plane, that is the first place we go. So my grandparents' house is on Florence Avenue, 1502 Florence Avenue. So it um, okay, in addition. is mm-hmm, right there, right behind Jackson State. Yeah. Right behind Jackson State. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's all of us. West Jackson, that's where we basically grew up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, Eddie's has been there. The light, um, Did we try it? No, I think we were driving past, and I think it was a long ass line of people sitting in the cars waiting on the food. For good I, reason. You remember that? It's delicious. <laughs> we gotta try it, it next long, time. I don't the, like, remember. The long um, line. I think that may have been you. Maybe that was. It had to have been you. No, maybe it wasn't. I've recently was just recent, discovered yeah. Jackson and Mississippi oh. overall. Yeah, we just mm-hmm. visited. Uh, not too long ago um for yeah my, my parents 70th both of them 70th birthday wow so, my so i wonder if your parents your parents might know my mom she's gonna be upset with me for telling her she my mom is turning 75 and her she has a younger brother so they may have just missed each other but you know how folks in jackson do she's gonna be like well who are his people asha what maybe i know them if they went to jim hill and i went to jim hill so you know she's gonna ask me so <laughs> my mom she didn't go to high school in jim hill. i mean in mississippi she went to high school in oxford and stuff like that mm-hmm. okay um, but in the city it depends on yeah as far as my mom is has done some um, substitute teaching in the public school system. She's mm-hmm. an actress now. She got into acting in her 60s. So now Oh, good for her. Actor. But um Koran, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. If they I'll ask, ask her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um yep. It's a, it's a very small world. It is it's definitely. A, a Who knew, right? World, Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> I talk to more and more people that have family in Jackson through the podcast as well. So it's, it's mm-hmm. we're just getting started. So 
<laughs> yeah. Yep. Absolutely. It's that great migration. You know, folks came up from the South, from Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and came out West. A lot so. of Illinois people as far mm-hmm. as connected to. Yeah, definitely. So, how did you end up leaving uh, Mississippi? So my mom left Mississippi. I was born okay. in Portland, but my, my oh, yeah. mom left um, because she followed her brother to Seattle. My uncle left, went to Seattle. My mom followed behind him and then got a job in the Lake Washington School District. She started out as a counselor and then moved down to Portland for a job and then became a principal and then stayed there for the remainder of her career which is when she also had me too. So that's how I was born and raised in Portland. But everyone asked like, how did you go from Mississippi roots to Portland, Oregon? I was like, right. look, a J-O-B. That's what happened. <laughs> All of the money. <laughs> yeah. So I noticed um, you're a lawyer, but at the same time you have an MBA. Like what made you um, focus, I guess, on, on business after you got into law? Yeah, that's a good question, because after law school, you couldn't have told me I was going to go back to school. I was so (laughs) done. I was just, oh, I was so done. But what ended up happening is I started out in my career doing insurance defense. So I was working on behalf of doctors and hospitals that had been sued. And then I transitioned into employment law. And then I started, I was doing plaintiff side employment law. So people who had been discriminated against or wrongfully terminated, I was representing them in court. And then I decided, well, maybe if I start working with the employers, I can help prevent some of these lawsuits from happening because a lot of it was communication skills and employers, especially the smaller ones, just not knowing the law and the way that they should or not carrying it out. So now let me work with them and see if I can help reduce some of these lawsuits. Um, Wishful thinking on on that part. But as I started advising business owners, I I wasn't confident in the business skills that I had developed, even though I'd been running my own practice for a little bit. Um, So I decided to go back and get my MBA because I thought that it would really help me be a better business advisor to the business client so I could advise them on business and legal issues. But what I learned in business school is that there's no experience like just doing it yourself. Like just get, not to say that you don't need mentors because you do and you need some guidance, but business school, in my opinion, is the ticket if you want to go work for a big business, a corporation. Business school is not that useful if you're trying to be an entrepreneur. Mm. Okay. I didn't know that. I never put that together. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember in um, in high school, one of the things I wanted to pursue as a degree program in college was entrepreneurship. I saw that mm-hmm. and I was like, huh, I never knew you can major in that. But everybody told me, like, you don't need a degree to, to be an entrepreneur. That's not really useful. So I went more. Into you know, I think it depends on how, I mean, now they have all these education and support programs for entrepreneurs. And I think that they are important. But one thing I'll never forget a friend of mine who has this booming media company in Oakland. He told me, he said, the folks who are formally educated and then go start a business. So like me, for example, we have a harder time making that transition to an entrepreneur because we are told what the limit is, how to do things and what the ceiling is. Right. Whereas someone who hasn't had that formal training in that particular area, the entrepreneurship is all about dreaming. It's about solving a problem. It's about making the impossible come true. So when you have been taught that this is what is possible and this is how you do it, it's often hard to make that transition into that dreamer space, right? That limitless potential space. So 
you need some support, I would say, because there are definitely some business things that you need to you need to understand accounting at a basic level. So you know that you need to go hire somebody if that's not your thing. Right. Got to understand what regulations and laws you need to look up, what licenses you need. But in terms of the dreaming thing, that is not something that someone can teach you. But how to make that dream come true. That's where that support comes in. OK. Can you for some of our listeners? What, go ahead. No, go ahead. I guess for some of our listeners, um, can you give them or just, you know, what are some tips with, you know, starting your business and things like that, that a lot of people don't think about? Yeah. So, I mean, from the legal perspective for me, I always have to tell people to talk to an attorney and get some legal guidance about what kind of container you need to put your business in, whether it's an LLC or a corporation, you know, connect with a CPA or a bookkeeper so you understand how to keep track of your income and expenses. So at the end of the year, when you file taxes, it's not going to be a mess and a headache. Um, I always tell people to find a mentor, someone who is doing a similar business or who is further along that you admire in business because they can help you work through some of these questions because of their experience. And if they're willing to pour into you, that's a win-win. But I would say on the, so those are some tactical things that people need, but really the biggest thing you can do is build your mindset and your belief in yourself right? Doubt, doubt is going to come. You're going to question yourself, but the more that you can, um, kind of put this doubt and this questioning in a container and acknowledge it and say, okay, they're feeling some some insecurity here. I'm feeling some doubt here, but I'm not going to let that stop me. I believe in what I'm doing. I believe that I am capable of doing it. Then you will figure out the rest. I heard um, Lovey Ajay, I think that's how you pronounce her name. Um, her book is a professional troublemaker. She has her own podcast, I think by the same title, but she said, Someone asked her, you know, you just seem so fearless. And she's like, I'm not fearless. I just don't allow fear to make me do less. And I thought that was so beautiful, right? Yeah. And entrepreneurship is such a roller coaster. You have all these emotions. It's just like life, right? We we have all these emotions. Things go up and down. But it's not about not having fear as you move forward. It's about not letting that fear or that insecurity or that unknown limit you from your progress forward. So for someone that um, is ready to start a business, how do they decide what type of entity or what type of bucket they, they need to fall under? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, again, from the legal perspective, as the attorney, I'm going to say start an LLC or a corporation right away because it protects you. So LLCs and corporations provide legal protection. So if you get sued, they're suing the business and not you individually. It also protects your personal assets. So if you own a home or a car or you have some savings or, you know, your own personal bank accounts, if there's something that happens, the business protects you. It can't take your you know, your own personal assets. It protects your credit also as an individual, if you're taking out credit in the name of the business and not as yourself. So it really allows you to, if your business fails, it helps you come out whole on the other side instead of coming out in a deficit, like we all do with these student loans that I'm still paying off all these years (laughs) later, right? Um, But in terms of determining LLC or corporation or what's the right structure, there are a number of questions you should ask, like, how do you want to pay taxes? Corporations pay their own taxes. 
And then if you were the owner, you're supposed to put yourself on payroll and then you pay employment taxes because you're an employee also of your corporation. And then any draw that you take as an owner is taxed at a different rate. But if you want something a little bit more simple, more like a sole proprietorship, then an LLC would be an option. And you as the owner of the LLC or owners of the LLC are responsible for paying taxes personally on the taxable income for the LLC. I would also look at, you know, how do you want to um, grow your business? Do you want investors who might be interested in having an equity interest in your company, some ownership in your company? Then if that's the case, it's probably going to be a corporation. Like think about these tech companies. Their whole goal as a little tech company is to start up, um, have a product that people want to use and then to sell. But they are, so they start up with a corporation with the intent to sell to a bigger tech giant like Facebook or Google or, or something else. And so they need stocks to be able to do that. If you are looking at going into business and you want just like the simplest structure, then an LLC. But I always tell people to speak to an attorney and an accountant, you know, one right after the other so that you understand your global picture. If you're looking at two different incomes, if you're looking at multiple income streams, you know, what do you want to do with your business and how do you think it's going to make an impact on you financially? And then take that to the CPA and they can also help you work through it on the tax side, whereas the attorney is going to help you work through it on the legal side and the business side. Is there something unique about starting a business in California versus other states? I don't know if you're um, aware of other states' rules. or. Yeah, you know, I mean, People, well, there's some benefits, there's pros and cons, or maybe maybe not even positive and negatives. There's just things that are, right? Yeah. California has a really, really high tax rate compared to, I shouldn't say really, really high. It has a higher tax rate compared to a lot of other states. So if, if you're not doing business in California, then you may want to look at another state that doesn't have state income tax, for example, like Nevada or Florida or Washington state doesn't have state income tax. But if you are doing business in California, California is going to tax you on the income that you make within the state. So, you know, I would, again, talk to a professional to decide um, what state would be the, the right one for filing the business entity. But California is also known as the innovation hub, right? Silicon Valley, just right down the street from me is where all of these ideas have been born and, and taken to market, especially in the tech space. And there is a culture of entrepreneurship here. And there are a number of support entities that will help people either take their idea and take it to market or take their business and grow it and scale it. Then I know that they have other offerings in other states, but I don't know that other states have like as robust of an entrepreneurship community as California has. So you're going to pay to play in California, but you're also, you know, I think your chances of like getting the support that you need, it might be a little bit easier in California than in another state. <clears throat> um I've I've heard you say talk about professional um pro professional corporation and if you provide like professional service you have to be a corporation which is like the first time I've ever heard about that can you talk about that a little bit Mm -hmm, absolutely. So in California specifically, um, California has, there's 
LLCs, there's corporations, there's professional corporations, there's nonprofit corporations, and there's probably a couple other distinctions. So in California specifically, professional corporations are required and reserved for people who have professional licenses that are regulated by some kind of California statute. So attorneys, doctors, arch- licensed architects, licensed therapists, um, licensed clinical social workers, I'm trying to think of who else. If your if your profession has like a professional organization and is regulated by some sort of California law, then you have to be a California professional corporation or a sole proprietorship. You can't be a limited liability company. Um, there are some exceptions, like you could be, um, like attorneys can be a limited partnership, but they also have to have like a million dollars in assets to be able to be a limited partnership. So in other states, the rules about that are different. Some have limited, what is it, maybe limited liability professional companies. Uh, let me not, let me you know, let me stick to California, which is exactly what I know. But each state, it's important to contact an attorney in that state um, because each state generally has the same entities, but sometimes they have a little bit different. So you definitely want to, and that's why I always tell people like, don't just go to LegalZoom because I have worked with a number of licensed professionals, like a couple therapists, a couple architects who went to LegalZoom was like, oh, I just need this corporation or I need this LLC. And it turns out that by law, they can't actually do it. So I always recommend to speak to somebody and then make a decision about whether it's something you can do on your own or whether you should stick with the professional expertise to start your business. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned that because I've thought about using LegalZoom before, but Mm -hmm. I was a little hesitant. Um, A lot of times, I mean, I've started an LLC in in a different state in Georgia. Um, Mm -hmm. And for that, I just kind of did it by myself. But Mm -hmm. I've looked at in other states using, um, because I think California, there's more requirements than that there were in Georgia. So Mm -hmm. is that something you help um, businesses with? Like, do you help people start business? In California, I do. Okay. I try to stay out of other states. One of my friends uh, lives in New York, and she was like, Asha, okay, I formed this LLC, but but then I was reading the instructions, and it says I have to publish in a newspaper. And I said, like, what? Because we don't have to publish in a newspaper. I, first of all, what newspapers you know, <laughs> yeah. are still, you know, exist? Most everything is online now, and, you know, and so... Each state has a little bit of it, or each state can have a different requirement. And if I would have formed her business in New York, I wouldn't have been prepared to, you know, publish the notification in the newspaper because I wasn't familiar with that state. So as an attorney and as any licensed professional, we have to make sure that we are performing at the level that is the standard for the industry. So if I come into a situation where I'm not as well-versed or as well as competent as I should be, that responsibility is on me. And I have to make sure that I'm just as good as the expert attorney in this area before I take it on. So I know California law, that's where I'm licensed. That's where I've practiced for the past 10 plus years. So I really try and stick to California law as much as possible. In your experience, um, like what are some, what are like the most common mistakes people make when starting an LLC or after they started? 
Yeah, I would say even before people wait because they think they have to make a certain amount of money to to form an LLC that it's not going to be worth it unless they're earning, you know, let's say $100,000 a year. Now, there's one calculation that says that's when you really start to see the savings if you elect the S corporation status, which means that you're taxed a little bit differently. But I try to get people to think about like, what can you do with your LLC? Your LLC or your corporation is your foundation. You need a, you need a good, strong foundation to build anything, right? Your business entity and structure is that foundation for your business that's going to grow and be successful and make you lots and lots of money. But one of the things that you can do in the beginning before you start making money is you were able to write off all of your business expenses. Now, if you filed an LLC and say, hey, I put you know, $15,000 into this business this first year and I'm not yet profitable, the government's going to look at that, the IRS and the Franchise Tax Board in California, they they see that you have taken the steps to file an LLC and they're going to allow you to claim those tax deductions. If you do that as a sole proprietor, they're probably not going to let you claim those tax deductions because they're going to say, you're not really a business, you haven't made any money and you can't get a tax deduction for a hobby. Right. So and if you're starting your business as a side hustle, you want to be able to claim those tax deductions because you're going to offset your other taxable income. So you're going to reduce your overall taxable income. Also, once you have an LLC and again, talk to a CPA who's a professional, but just in my general experience, not my expert experience, my general experience, you know, as a business owner, there's so many things that you can write off. So do you use your cell phones to do any work for your business? Yeah, then that expense becomes a tax write-off. What about your computer or the equipment you use to record your podcast? That all becomes a tax write-off. Any meals that you have with somebody, brainstorming ideas, or just talking about what you're doing business-wise, that becomes a tax-deductible expense. So you want to look at, when when you're meeting with a CPA, you want to find somebody who can not just help you reduce your taxes, but can also help you take advantage of tax credits and tax deductions that will help you reduce some taxable income, but also grow on the other side as well. Okay. So your transition to California, I kind of, I'm going to go a little side on the, the, the away from the business for a little bit. Mm-hmm. What was your experience like? Um, you say you're in the Bay area. We're in Los Angeles. I'm not sure mm-hmm. for our listeners. What was your experience like when you first got to um, the Bay Area? Yeah. So when I first got to the Bay, I was actually recruited to play basketball at Santa Clara University. But right before I got there, the whole coaching staff left and new coaching staff came in. So my introduction to Santa Clara once I actually got there was like super uncomfortable um, because the new coach said, well, I don't want you on my team. I've got someone who's coming a year behind you and I want her to take your spot. So the coach cut me without having seen me play, told me that if I wanted to play college basketball, I had to go someplace else. And we were on the quarter system. So we didn't start until September. She's like, you got to go by October quarter, you know, it was 10 weeks, right? That was my first like introduction to adulthood. I had never experienced anything like that. And then at 18 being away from home. So Santa Clara was uncomfortable for me in the beginning because the reason why I was there was no longer the reason. But I remember writing, I think I was 12, maybe I was 15. I wrote, it's still on my wall, actually in my childhood bedroom, that I'm going to earn a college scholarship for basketball. And I, I, my goal for playing basketball was to get my education paid for. So fortunately I had a family and friends that were willing to stand up for me and fight and 
the way that that whole transaction transpired, the school honored my scholarship for the next four years. So I was able to stay at Santa Clara and then not playing basketball Mm. opened up so many other doors and allowed me to meet so many other people and to really pour into myself and to nourish all of the other interests that I had that were parallel to basketball. But because basketball would have taken up so much time, I wouldn't have been able to explore those those other options. So the first lesson I probably learned just in adulthood is that you have to make situations what they need to be for you because you might come under one set of circumstances and that may change, but you still have to get what you need out of the situation. And I was able to do that at Santa Clara, but coming from Portland being, you know, the only black girl in my graduating high school class, I I did go to a private school. So that's already like a limited population of people. Anyway, Um, I got to Santa Clara and I was like, black people. Now, black people, (laughs) Santa Clara only had like 2% black people on campus. It was like, you know, less than 800, 8,000 students for grad and undergrad. So we were like, 200 people at Santa Clara, but I was like, black people, you know, I was, was missing folks, just hadn't seen them. But then when I went to San Francisco for school and moved to Oakland, I was like, oh, black yeah. people, okay, all right, yeah. right? I was yeah, like, I'm, I'm here, I've arrived. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so what it did is it just allowed me like more space to be more of me, because when I was the only little chocolate chip in the situations I was dealing with or reconciling how I thought that I needed to behave and also how people expected me to behave. But then when I was surrounded by more folks within, again, diversity within diversity, I could just kind of explore what I wanted to explore without questioning, like, is this something Black people do? Is this really, Mm. am I not Black if I do that, do this or do that, which were all those questions that I had as a kid, because I also grew up as an only child too. So it's not even like I had siblings. I didn't have cousins in the state of Oregon, you know, so I really didn't have like that Black community, but I had, had strong Black parents, but I didn't have a Black community. So by the time I got to the Bay, I was like, all right, I'm here. I'm here. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. How you say you've been 20 years you've been there? 20, 20 years. Yes. I can't believe it. 20 years. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen since you've been there? Ooh, well, right now, um, the, the one right now is just the gentrification, you know, and it's even mm. more exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, homelessness has increased and it was increasing already before the pandemic. But, you know, now when I walk down the street, it's there's tents everywhere. You know, there are yeah. tents in, in a lot of places and it's mostly black and brown faces that I see on the street. And so that is really disheartening, especially when you see the building of downtown Oakland, you see these new high rises going up in these buildings that don't have parking. And it's like, okay, there's this new building here and right across the street are people who can't afford housing. And it is really just starkly calling into question, what are the priorities of this city? You know, like how how can you build this housing and then price it at 2,500 for a one bedroom apartment and say, we're creating housing for people, but for who? So the people who are able to afford that are largely in the tech space. Most of the people who come to work in tech in the Bay Area are not from the Bay Area. They're transplants from from some other place and not a knock on them, but the Bay is growing and it's expanding, but it's leaving its native Bay citizens behind because our schools aren't that great up here. They're not training people to participate in tech. They've got to go someplace else really to get that 
computer engineering experience. And so the folks who are coming in and who are benefiting from all of this growth are our transplants. You know, again, not a knock on them, but we're leaving the folks who have been here for generations behind. So it's definitely changing. The landscape is changing. Um, Lake Merritt has been or was revitalized at some point, and it became a space that people, black, brown, white, everybody would come out to enjoy. And people who were not from here started moving in and they started complaining about how loud the lake is. Well, everybody knows on Saturdays there's a farmer's market, then there's like the African market, and then there's people who come and drum. And that's the culture of, yeah. of what it is out here. It's super grassroots. People are are um, appreciative of arts, they're expressive, and uh, new people are coming in like, we don't like this. So, you know, Barbecue Becky came from the, <laughs> Lake Merritt, right around the corner, like right, right wow. down the hill from me, oh, you wow. know? Yeah. We've so experienced that area. Thing. Yeah, that's like my favorite part about um, that whole <laughs> area yeah. because I didn't care too much for San Francisco, but that Oakland, mm-hmm. I had a, a cousin that lived right, you know, within viewing distance of... Mm-hmm. Lake Marriott, and so got to see the uh, Saturday, you know, the venue yeah. and yeah. music, right? And all of that culture, yeah, culture yeah, it's was beautiful, yeah. yeah. And it's it's yeah. like that, and you know, of course, South Central and Compton, and you know, Southeast, yeah, Southwest, Southwest of downtown where we are, but we mm-hmm. don't really venture off that much. We, as far as we're in downtown, that's kind of a LA thing. A lot of times you go. You know, usually sometimes you go visit a couple other places, depending on what you're going there for. But a lot of times you kind of stay in the circle and what's Mm -hmm. convenient for you. Right. But even just when we were visited there and we know it's here as well. So we're not saying it's not here. It's there. But Mm -hmm. we got a chance to experience that little area and it was Mm -hmm. a magical feeling. It was real nice. Yeah. 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 And I real nice vibe. I do see a mm-hmm. parallel in what you were talking about with San Francisco and the change there. It's kind of similar here in LA as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen the homelessness and the tents increase. Um, right. At the same time, it's like somehow they they get funding to solve homelessness, but somehow they they fail at it, and then right. um, and then the whole Silicon Beach, as they call it, in Santa Monica and stuff, is pushing. Mm-hmm. Increasing rent and pushing out a lot of the residents that used to be there. and Yeah. Um, yeah. And and these politicians, they could make a change if they want to. Not even you know, just they the could. politicians. You know, you got a lot of money out here in the world. If you know, Yeah. But, but, a, but homelessness specifically is a policy issue. You know, there's enough yeah. money mm-hmm. to do something with it. And even just being educated as voters, you know, rent control came up on the ballot a couple of years ago. But, you know, there were some commercials by the landlords that made it look like if we did rent control, it was going to be out of control. It was just misinformation, right? And so yeah. people voted against their own interests and voted, struck down the rent control, and then complained that rents keep going up, you know? So there, there's a number of things that we can do, but a lot of it is just like really educating ourselves on what is actually on the ballot when it comes time to vote. Because in our cities, like we're the ones who are going to make that change. And with... I guess, you know, the Bay Area being one of your new or one of your, you know, first experiences on, you know, of course, culture um, Mm -hmm. or even just seeing homelessness and stuff like that. I could say I experienced or got a a look at it um, when I was in Atlanta and that was maybe Mm -hmm. 2007 to 2006. And Mm -hmm. then we moved up to the D.C. Maryland 
Virginia area mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. got a chance to you know experience it one way there and then coming here right. to LA yeah it's a you a whole different ball game right totally different but it is in a lot of places mm-hmm. and it has a different style so when even when you say you know it being about politics and things like that yes is is not just a certain area right in the world Right, you know, and I even see. Um, and when I was in Jackson, we started to see panhandlers. Mm-hmm. Something new mm-hmm. you didn't see, you know, in in Jackson. Right, right, yep. So it's um, it's weird. It's really weird because we we just we I think we mentioned it the other day as well. We just witnessed them clean up a homeless little um area right before mm-hmm. Super Bowl. Right before Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been there since yeah. we've been here. <laughs> Right. So right. see it, you know, and just pick them up and move them out and pop them down someplace else. That they went across the street on the sidewalk. Right. Right. <laughs> you <Exactly. know? laughs> yeah. So it's you know it's quite an experience. I could say personally as well though. I'm it from from you know from both sides of it. You still have to to ex- or to witness it or to see it. It's a gratitude mm-hmm. that has been set in me even just since I've gotten here and I know it has helped with my survival and just my faith here, but mm-hmm. to see it, yes, it does make you become super grateful for what you do. Right. Have. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. you also understand a, sh- a certain level of strength that these people do have to have. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of, some of them do make it out. They, as far right. as, yeah, they, they find a house. Life gets right. better. They get a job and right. things, you know, keep right. on. Some of them have a job. They just don't have mm-hmm. a house. You know, right. A lot of people don't know that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I teach at a community college and there's, I don't know what the numbers are, but there are a significant number of students who are considered homeless because they don't have their own permanent address. So whether that means that they're sleeping in their car or on a friend's couch, that still counts as being homeless. Yes. And so I think that there are a lot more people who are experiencing that than we may even realize and you know most they say most americans are just one paycheck away from not being able to make that next rent payment or that next mortgage payment so it's really easy and and we do a really good job in this country of like blaming the suffering you know blaming the poor blaming people who are struggling instead of looking at the structures that have created this outcome for the people who are disenfranchised by the systems right and speaking of that this um crippling situation that we've had over the past two years how has things changed up in your career and even in your area with that mm-hmm. have you seen like oh, go ahead i'm sorry yeah there has been i think what happened at the beginning of the pandemic is that there was a big push for people to start their own businesses i think two i think that's for two reasons one i think a lot of people weren't able to go to work and they didn't know where that security was going to come from anymore. So that pushed people. But two, I think it also gave people the space and the time to think about what they really wanted and go after it. So there, in, in my in my circles, there were a number of people who started businesses and a number of women who started businesses as well. I think Black women is the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in the U.S. right now. Um, and so, you know, 
And it, and it also caused people to think about how are we going to survive? So restaurants who never had takeout before or didn't use delivery service, right? Now they're trying to figure out or have had to figure out a way, how do we do this delivery where we can have our workers in here and keep, you know, churning out food and products and, and stay afloat. So I think it has caused people to become more innovative, caused people to take that risk because they figure, you know, what do I have to lose now? It's already a pandemic. If you can figure out how to make a business and survive through the pandemic, you can do anything, you know, I'm convinced. Um, but I think it also just gave people more space to assess what is important. You know, for me, it, it allowed me to take a break because I wasn't, I would commute from Oakland up to Sacramento for work three days a week, or I would go up one day and then stay up there and work three days and then come back down to the Bay Area, which didn't feel like that? it was, that was extreme. it's 90, 90 miles. Yeah. It's about an hour and 15 minute drive with the way I drive hour and 15 minutes, <laughs> <laughs> getting up 80. Um, so, but it, right right so but it it allowed me to just rest you know to get up and like walk down the hallway to get to my computer and it and it gave me the space to really think about taking care of myself in a way that I didn't have time for before because I didn't know how to make time or didn't even consider that that would be something in my control because I was under you know the impression or thought that I had to adhere to these other schedules and be everywhere and do everything. Well, when I couldn't be everywhere and do everything because we were on lockdown, I was like, oh, this feels pretty good actually to be in one spot and to get up and give myself some time and, and to not rush into, you know, I don't, I don't have very much FOMO anymore. Now it's like JOMO, the joy of missing out instead of the fear of missing <laughs> out, right? I'm just more strategic and more intentional about how I'm spending my time because I've been given that space to really think about how do I want to spend my time. Okay. I can agree with that. I made a lot of changes over the, the year or over the two mm-hmm. years, and we've seen a lot of change in downtown mm-hmm. LA um, over the two years as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, go ahead. What I was going to ask, what made you get into podcasting? You know, I was looking, it really was for marketing. um, And I was looking at a way that I could give more information to people in a way that was cost effective. So my whole mission, my business community is called Transcend. And the the tagline, if you will, the mission is to build a business and leave a legacy. So we as black and brown folks have been working forever in this country, especially black folks, right? My mom was just telling me the other day, um, because we were talking about why is it so easy for immigrant populations to come over and to do the dirty work that we don't necessarily want to do. The stuff that Black folks used to do in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and beyond that, before that, like, you know, cleaning houses and, you know, building chimneys or, you know, whatever, right? Doing that manual labor. And my mom said, she was like, you know, when I was growing up, you didn't want to do that work because somebody would go and spend all day working at this white person's house. And then the white person would say, I'm not going to pay you. And the black person would have no recourse to get paid. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as we didn't have to fill those jobs anymore, we culturally, we didn't want to do them because we wanted to go someplace where our time would be valued, right? We wanted Mm -hmm. to be treated more equally, but immigrant populations don't have that history here. So there's no shame within that community or those communities of becoming the plumber, of becoming the electrician, of cleaning the houses, right? It's a it's a means yeah. to an end. 
But so when I created this membership community, Transcend, I realized how many of us are creative, how we have side hustles. We've always learned and figured out how to make money, but we haven't learned the rules of business or the rules of the tax code. And so we all have some uncle who probably had a business and could never retire, right? Or he stopped working and the next day he passed away, right? Because we just didn't set up how to transition that business or how to sell that business. And so my mission became to teach black and brown folks how to build a business that is also going to take care of you. Most of the wealthy folks in the United States, top 10%, top 1%, have a family business somewhere. And that is one of the tools that they use to pass down wealth from generation to generation, whether it is um, paying your children under the age of 18 and it's tax deductible or it's tax free. So children under the age of 18 are not uh, working for their parents, right, are not paying payroll taxes and the parents aren't either. The owners of the company, if they're the parents, aren't paying that either. But then also how many children, my, my childhood best friend um, or one of my childhood best friends, his dad was a dentist and his dad bought the dental practice from the grandfather. And then the dad sold it to my friend once my friend graduated from dental school. So since we were kids, we met in fourth grade, we all knew that Scott was going to grow up and be a dentist, right? That is also a form of generational wealth. Now, if he didn't want to be a dentist, no problem. His dad could have sold the practice to somebody else, but his dad had also set up um, this system for his son to buy into and start making a really good living right away where he didn't have to wait five or six or 10 years to become a partner with somebody else's business, building it from scratch. So, you know, business is really a tool that we can use to change the economic landscape and trajectory of black and brown folks. And so my mission is to provide that information in the most cost-effective format as possible. And doing a podcast is one of the ways that I'm able to share that mission and to share those tips. That was a long answer to a very straightforward <laughs> question. <laughs> that was very good though. Yeah. What are some of the ways you, uh, well, at least what is your opinion on cryptocurrency and, you know, how it's going to intertwine with business in the future? Yeah, you know, embarrassingly, I'm like staying out of that conversation. Maybe not embarrassingly. I, I only have like so much capacity in my brain <laughs> right now. You do a lot. <laughs> I do a lot, right. And uh, But also just my personality wise, like I want to sit back a little bit and see what's going to happen. And I think the people who have jumped in, you know, really early on are, are a little bit more of those risk takers. And I'm I'm not that kind of a risk taker yet. So, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with crypto. I think if if people validate it, it's going to decide that they're no longer interested in it and it's not worth it. It's not going to have any value anymore. So it'll be interesting to see um, what happens and, you know, what takes off and what sticks, what, what doesn't stick, you know, and how we use it. Same thing with NFTs. I'm putting my mind around that concept <laughs> of <laughs> nfts but you know it's like as somebody explained it to me the other day you know a painting is valuable like the mona lisa for example right the mona lisa if you've ever seen um actually seen it like it's it's an ugly picture it's an ugly <laughs> portrait right it's not i don't have to go look at right. it to see that <laughs> no it's not cute it's but now. it is one of the most valuable and widely recognized portraits of a person 
in the world. Everybody knows what the Mona Lisa looks like, right? It's under lock and key at the Louvre in, in Paris. And not because I think it's beautiful, but because enough people have said that it has value. And so it's under this lock and key. So I think the same thing could be said for NFTs and for crypto. If enough people say that this is where we want to go and give it value, then I think it's going to take off. If people don't value it, don't want to use it, it's not going to happen. Yeah, actually, on on the topic of NFT, um, I think a lot of people, even me initially, I looked at it more of art and people selling Mm -hmm. images, but Mm -hmm. it could it's it's smart contract built into it which is basically Mm -hmm. basically legal document and code and so Mm -hmm. like it's gonna start being integrated more into um supply chain management even like Mm -hmm. selling tickets at a concert or Mm -hmm. a lot of different things and which is going to create a lot of transparency like even with music um a lot of artists get um, shafted on on mm-hmm. getting the money, but if we set it up in in a smart contract way, like everyone will get um, whatever they need to get, whatever percentage is set out mm-hmm. in the beginning, yeah. and all of that. So there's a lot of application. I think it will start to become a lot more apparent. I think right now, like the mm-hmm. images and the art stuff gets, you know, gets it into people's awareness. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it will start to get integrated into other parts of the industry. Yeah, I think the art makes it easy to understand, right? It's like an example to explain what this thing is. And I can wrap my mind around that a little bit. (laughs) So I guess with um, to ask, what are some of your places that you've traveled to? Because I keep going back to... (laughs) You saying you grew up as the only, you graduated as the only black girl. I don't know where my brain goes from that. And I'm just curious, uh-huh. how many cultures have you had a um, chance to experience outside of the U.S.? Yeah, I love traveling. Like, that is my passion. And that's also, in a sense, my my safe space. That's that's my break from um, from America, my break from all the responsibilities I have, because I can go someplace. And I can pretend like my phone doesn't work. You know, now you can get a Wi-Fi connection. You could always be available, right? But I'm like, nope, I'm traveling. So it allows me to just disconnect from the things that I need and want to disconnect from. And then gives me that space to be creative again and start thinking about, you know, what do I want my life to look like in the next five years? Or what do I want my business to look like in the next year, next three years, five years? Excuse me. Um but I have been to, I think it is 25 countries or 20, wow. 22, 25 countries or something like that. Um, and I think I really started traveling because I was looking for more of that cultural support that I didn't get growing up as a kid. And I would go back to Mississippi just for a week to visit my grandparents because by the time I came along, um, my grandparents were you know, too old to handle all of my youthful energies. My mom was like, I can't send you there for the summer. You know, we will we'll go back for a week every summer, like in July, which was always the hottest week of my life um, in, in Jackson, Mississippi. It is. But I think, be- yeah, it is. It's super hot. I became really fascinated in other cultures and in languages. I love learning languages. Um, I speak Spanish and a little bit of Portuguese. And I used to know okay. some Haitian Creole Um, But I've lost a little bit of that. My next two languages are French and American Sign Language. 
But, you know, with language and with cultural understanding and competency, you can communicate with people. And one of the biggest benefits of traveling is learning that there's more than one way to do something. We are sold such a narrow dream of success here in the U.S. And that's worked for some. It's it's not worked so well for a lot. But, you know, different cultures have different ways of doing things and different priorities. And there are happy people all over the world. And it's always a really good reminder for me that, you know, you can pick and choose what you want to do, what you want to engage in and where you find value in some of these things and do what fits for you. I'd never left if I hadn't been able to travel the world and see other things. I wouldn't know all the possibilities that are out there. 25 countries is a lot. I'm like, yeah. I want to ask what's your favorite, but that's going to be really hard, but I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> you know, you can yeah. say multiple and, you know. My favorite, the country I keep going back to really is Cuba. Um, I love Cuba for the music, the dance, the culture, the people. That was also the, it was the second country that I went to. The first one was Mexico. Second one was Cuba for my last quarter of uh, college at Santa Clara. And so I studied abroad there for a whole quarter and really got to know the culture um, intimately. But I also recognize that Cuba is enjoyable for me as an American with enough money to survive and a return ticket out of Cuba, right? So it's definitely Cuba from this tourist perspective, but a little bit deeper because I do make friends and, you know, get to know folks there. Um, But I also... You know, my I went to Kenya and uh, Zanzibar. I love those. You know, we have these stereotypes of what Africa looks like. And I think also as Black folks, we don't often realize that we also have the stereotypes because the same images, like, you know, people say silly stuff about us. We're like, man, you should just know better, right? But then we don't realize that we're only shown a very narrow image of Africa or any other place for that matter. Sure. So just to see like, countries full of black people and black people in leadership maybe you see that in the south right but you know where you have politicians and mayors and governors who are black but just to see that and to see um the community aspect of so many cultures that we don't really have here anymore um is just absolutely beautiful i think europe is also really pretty europe just blows my mind because you see these structures that are so old like you you pass by these churches that are like 400 years old right Mm -hmm. or i went to the Colosseum in rome and i'm like man this thing is huge like like a stadium size building or structure And there's some parts that are eroded, but it is still standing. And people built this centuries ago by hand. Yeah, And 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 we have houses falling apart after 40 years. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) The amount of details they put into the buildings in a a lot of countries in Europe is so amazing. Um, Cuba is actually one of the places I've always wanted to go since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Wait, I can't go there. So I was waiting for, you know, the uh, the restrictions to get lifted, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, once mm-hmm. it did, I, I never made it there. So I'm, I'm going well, to have totally to go back to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. But about the, the like, about, you mentioned um, Africa and how we don't get exposed to, mm-hmm. yeah, it happens with a lot of countries, but Africa is we have the least amount of exposure 
um, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I grew up in um, Ethiopia. My parents are Eritreans, mm-hmm. and you know when I a lot of times a lot of the questions would be like, "Oh, you guys have." I just realized most of the time you're seeing like the villages and right. you don't get to see that it, they have cities, mega cities mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. traffic and all of that. And people think, oh, there's no, I didn't know there was cars there. And, you know, most right. people have. Did you ride a lion to school? Yeah, like all like, of really? those things. <laughs> yeah. And most of Absolutely. it is just lack of exposure um, mm-hmm. to a lot of the cultures there. Absolutely. And like Kenya, Nairobi is a tech hub, you know, right. for Africa. Yeah. There's a lot of business that comes there. There are there are something like 43 tribes, I think, still in Kenya and languages that are still preserved. And there is a tribe known as the business tribe. Like, oh, yeah, they're nice. they're entrepreneurs. They're they're industry breakers and business people. I'm like a whole tribe. Like, that's what the characteristic of the whole tribe is. They're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, wow, that's amazing. You know? Yeah. yeah, that's real nice. That's dope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hospitality state, Mississippi. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Nice. Yeah. The whole state. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I mean, you'll give give offer me some sweet tea and then turn around and talk about me when I leave the room. That's how Mississippi uh, is. That's like polite, polite, but we we gonna say something. We're not gonna hold our tongue. <laughs> Yeah, but before we get ready to close it out, um, is there anything you'd like to let our guests know about any projects or anything you have going up or where they can, um, you know, get your services or anything? Yeah, I will say, uh, I will close with this uh, remark. I was listening to a podcast the other day and this um, person said that they had a new board member um, join the board for their business. Right. And so this guy was saying like, okay, this is where we are in business. And this is where we think we're going to be like tomorrow, next five years, whatever. And the new board member stopped him. And he said, you know what? I don't want to know where you are right now and what resources you have now. I want to know where you want to be and then tell me what it's going to take to get you there. And I thought that that question, this guy said that that question really changed his life because it changed his perspective because so often we're limited by our present circumstances. I only have $100 in my wallet today. What am I going to do with $100? Or, you know, I don't have any time to start this podcast. How am I going to do? I really want to start a business, but I'm so busy. I'm raising kids and, you know, all of these other things. But what if you flip the question and said, this is where I want to be in five years. Now work backwards and figure out how you're going to get there. Because when you break your goal down into actionable steps, you will get there. And your brain is thinking about the possibility. It's focused on that goal. It's not limited by where you are now. So I'm telling, like retelling that story to everybody because our potential is so limitless, but it's that mind piece, right? The resources are out there. Don't worry about who you know, what money you have right now. Think about where you are going and then think about what are the steps that you need to take to get there. So that's a lot of what I do in terms of my business coaching community. So I would say that if you want to connect with me, I'm on Instagram at Asha Wilkerson ESQ. That's mostly where I hang out. But my um, podcast is called Transcend the Podcast and it's on any of the podcast platforms, including YouTube, that you uh, um, might listen to it on. So those are the two best ways to get in contact with me and kind of stay up to date with what I've got going on. Nice, nice. Asha, it's been very nice talking with you and it's been very educational for me. Um, Yeah, we appreciate you 
uh, taking the time to be a guest. And for the listeners, uh, you can find the podcast at americangypsy.com. And we also have consistent self-improvement merch at luamlee.com. And we have music. We have music at classic, K-L-A-C-C-I-K, Carpenter, C-A-R-P-E-N-T-A. And that's on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, Tidal, all major platforms. And again, Asha, thank you for your time and consideration. Um, thank you to our listeners, for everybody that follows, comment, support, like, donate, all of the above. Consistent self-improvement to everybody, and we'll see you next time. We love you, and peace. 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 <laughs>